Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would take these words that are written in this letter to Colossae and that you would give us wisdom and understanding. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so my brother and I, when we were younger, would drive with my parents in the backseat, obviously, and we'd always fight for the radio. As the times when you, you'd have the radio and you'd only be able to play one station, people didn't have like headphones, and so you, you'd have to listen to your parents, and they would do that for an hour, and then they'd give us 15 minutes of WDGY or something like that, That's whatever it was, KDWB. Um, and I remember that was great. But as we would go on long trips, it would be kind of difficult because my brother two years older than me would we would begin to kind of annoy one another you know how that is and and then you kind of push and then you poke and then you hit and and then eventually dad says stop it um and he helps you draw a line down the middle of the car right anybody ever done that and and it's kind of like this is my right right here and this is you're right, and don't you pass over, because um, I have the rights of this area. And so we would go, and that would be going on, and my dad would threaten at times that he's going to, one time out in California, he's going to threaten that he's going to turn around and drive back home, and I'm going, yeah, right. You know, anyway. I had an opportunity to sit in the back seat with my brother when we were in our 40s, and, and my dad and my mom were in the front seat, we were going to some event, and I remember, it just hit me. Could you imagine us at 40 doing that? <laughs> Could you imagine? Like, we start poking each other and my dad says, hey, we can draw this line right here. And then you claim your right and he claims his right. And we live in a world today where everyone is claiming their rights. It is one of the most litigious societies where people sue each other all the time. And I'm not saying there aren't some fights for rights that are right. But one thing that's really interesting, when you come to Scripture, Scripture makes it really clear that Paul, when he looks at things, is looking more at responsibilities than rights. He he talks often when we look at Scripture about responsibilities. And so, just to kind of let us know where we're going to be heading here, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, one that will be, I think, important for us to to um, really dig into and understand. But what I want you to notice is in Colossians chapter 3, 17 and verse 23, kind of he lays out here is your pure basic responsibility. He's been calling people and, and the whole purpose of this letter, he thanks God, he prays for them, he struggles for them, all to bring them to maturity where they will begin to live out their responsibilities. And the one right to do this, it says... In verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. Imagine church that does whatever it takes to serve others in the name of Jesus. And then he adds this little thing, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because we can say we can do things in the name of Jesus, but you ever, you know, just kind of complain and grumble on your spirit while you're doing it? You know, I was putting up um, and, and getting things ready to put up lights on a tree outside our house and I had to continually remind myself, give thanks. As I'm doing this all in the name of Jesus, give thanks. Verse 23, he does somewhat similar the same thing. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as who? Working for the Lord. And if you go through this, this 
just letter alone, and you look at many of the places where he's praying, he is constantly saying with gratitude, with thanks, give thanks. He's constantly kind of salting and peppering it with this attitude where you're thankful. Well, last week, Peter, I think, did a great job. I asked him to do verses 1 through um, 17, and he only did 1 through 4. So... That was not what I was planning on, but let me kind of give you a quick, he said, he talked about the fact that the health, wealth gospel, this idea that God's best for you is, you're not going to find it in this life because there's a life that he has provided for us through his sacrifice and death. And as we open our hearts to him and trust him, um, we have this incredible exchange of all that God has, we get, and we give him all our junk, Right. And part of all that God has is eternity with him. And so if you try and, and teach this idea that um, health, wealth is, is what God has for you in this life, try and sell that message of Christ to people who are in persecution in Afghanistan or some Middle East country or to China. That, is, that isn't God's promise. Now, God will, if you do principles and follow those things, he will give you greater health. That's what Proverbs is all about. They're just general principles. If you do certain things, you will have more wealth. But it's not the goal. The goal was the fact that you will not just get to heaven. But here's the part that Peter, if you had gone further into this, he also talks not about what God's best for you is, this idea of heaven someday, but it's God's best in you, which is Jesus, which brings you to full maturity while you're here on earth. And what that means is God's best in you is heaven changing the atmosphere of earth around you. God in you so that where every step you take, you're bringing God and these new transformed attitudes of maturity where you're living out the responsibilities of what it means to do all things in the name of the Lord with a grateful spirit. I think one of the marks of a person who's truly mature in Christ is gratefulness. Think about that. You, you can spot a person who has grown deeply, I believe, in the Lord because they're grateful. And they're not grateful just because things are going well, but they're grateful in the most difficult times. They're grateful when you're calling on God saying, I don't feel like I measure up, I don't think any of that, but the truth is, I know you love me. So when you get to chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, Paul is explaining God's best in you today and every day is Jesus. It's heaven in you, impacting the world around you. Bring heaven to earth by putting to death your earthly selfish nature. Rid yourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Do not lie to one another. In verse 8, that's kind of what he says. And then he goes on, he says, like old clothing, toss them out. They're dirty, they're no longer any good. That old nature of yours, it stinks, it smells, it doesn't really create the kind of life you want, the kind of relationships you want, the kind of family life you want, the kind of work relationships you want. And so he kind of says, like old clothes, toss them aside when they're really dirty, really sweaty. It's kind of like if you've gone out for a run or you maybe worked out really hard, you ever come back and, and um, this happens for me and, and your wife goes, ooh, why don't you change your clothes? Ever had that? And then you go out, and maybe you wear those. You go out to the store. Can you imagine doing that? There's a sense where once it's rotten, it's smelly. Take them off. And then Paul says, "Here's the kind of clothes to put on." Part of maturity is taking off those things and putting on these new kinds of attitudes of gratefulness. But he goes on further, and he says in verse 12, "Clothe yourself with compassion." 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I love the way the message reads this. In fact, this is one that's being read often now at weddings. It, it, it's put this way, and they use this scripture. So chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and as completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. And then Paul continues in this passage, let God's peace rule in your hearts, let the word of Christ dwell in you, and begin to sing in, 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 in songs and hymns, and then he says, with gratitude in your heart. You can actually come here and you can worship and not be grateful. You can go through the motions, as Joel kind of mentioned, it's real easy, just like when you drive a car and all of a sudden you kind of go, man, I can't believe I even took those corners and turns and I ended up here because you just do it second nature. But gratitude calls for an intentional sense of, God, thank you. Let me, let me just pause here. When I come on a Sunday morning, I'm going to pause and, and think about how you have blessed me. So whatever you do, he says, do it to your best. And people notice. Both what you say and do, do it all for Jesus and with a thankful spirit. Now, when we get to verse 18, you know, we've gone through this, and he's kind of God's best for you. It's, it's still to come. God's best in you. It's heaven now in your life. As you begin to recreate through his presence in you, the, the, the environment around you, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, it's like, doesn't set the temperature of your life, what's going on out here. You set it by your choice to trust what is true. What I think is interesting, you get to verse 18 and it makes this huge shift. Now, Peter will a lot of times say, you know, Kevin, you always give me the hard messages. Well, this time I purposely didn't give him the hard message. This is a difficult message because we have a hard time understanding much of the culture when we get into these verses 18 of chapter 3 all the way of chapter 4, verse 18. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this picture here because he, he, he begins to start saying, I've been talking about love and dressing in this way and I'm, I'm telling you to wear this kind of clothing and now he tells you where, how to do it, in what settings to do it. The idea, he begins to start talking about the household and, and what it means to do so as a, a husband and wife and what it means as a child and a parent. And then he talks about what it means to be as a slave master in that day. It's almost an abrupt shift, except it really isn't because Paul is moving from generalities to now specifics and particularities. And he says, if you, you know, if, where the rubber meets the road is in the daily life. We can talk about it all here, right? It sounds really good. We all kind of agree about it. But then you get in your car and the first person who cuts you off, what do you do? Well, Paul has a word for you, but not necessarily here. But it, it's in the specifics. It's the particular. What's really important for us to understand here is that we're looking at a culture and a context. And we need to understand that in that time who Paul was talking to. 
Well, I heard a person say, culture in many ways is like water. We usually do not notice that the water we drink every day has any taste. You just kind of drink out of it. Only when you travel somewhere else does it strike us that water tastes funny. We've resolved that because now we buy bottled water, right? I remember as a kid when we traveled, I remember one time we had a place going, boy, their water tastes funny in this country, Dad. So also when you read a passage like this, it may kind of, what I would kind of say, taste kind of funny. Because family life 2,000 years ago in a foreign culture may actually taste funny or even bad. And what we need to understand is the culture and the context that Paul was living in if we're going to understand these instructions. And so you have to remember, Paul's not primarily about a social revolution as much as you about the word of God, heaven get into the heart that transforms a life, transforms a family, transforms a workplace, transforms an entire culture. So whatever you do, give your best. How, here's how you do it practically. Serve one another right where you live, is what he says in 3.18 through 4.1. Pray for open doors every day. Chapter 4, verse 2 through 6. And then at the end, he just gives this list of people. Be a team if you want to make the greatest impact. This life that we live with heaven in us is better when heaven is shared and you do this together as a team. You have a greater influence in this, in this culture than you do individually. So I want to warn you here. I will probably spend most of the time on those first few verses about the household because you actually have to get on a bridge from our culture and walk across it to understand that culture. And what's interesting is this is not a message that I've studied for um, a few months or read some books lately or anything like that. This is something I have been wrestling with and studying all my life. Uh, And I mean that from my days back in college. And what I want to say, even in saying this, is I don't want to be talking, because this passage is not the primary one where we talk about the whole idea of gender-based leadership or gift-based leadership. And in our church, we have all kinds of positions. In our leadership team, we have different positions on it. Within the church at large, there's different positions. What I want to talk about is this idea of what Paul is talking about, is what are our responsibilities, and understand why he writes what he writes in the culture and context of that day. So the first part of this message, just be aware, I probably will spend the bulk of the time on those first verses. And maybe we can touch on the other ones. So the very first thing he says is he gets into this thing and he says, I just told you to take off all this old clothes. Don't lie to each other. Don't treat each other unkindly. Um, Don't live these complaining, ungrateful lives. I want you to put on and dress new kind of clothes. And the way you wear this in your home and the way you wear this where you work and the way you wear this throughout the rest of the world around you is very important. And so he he starts by um, giving this command, which is really, if you get down to it, is if I were to sum up these verses, it's be well-connected and well-motivated. Be well, the goal of this instruction, think about it for a second. What's the goal of your marriage? If you think of a marriage relationship, the goal of a marriage relationship isn't to be right, it's to be well connected. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Love and serve one another. That's your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to say, this is my side and this is my right and this is my side and this is my right. It's about how do you live as mature adults so that when you're 40, you're not sitting there fighting one another over your rights. 
Because this is what becomes attractive to the world around you when they begin to see a life that is filled with gratitude and is living out the responsibilities of what it means to wear this kind of clothing in, in, their, in their primary relationships. Jesus seemed to say the same thing. He said, all people will know that you're my followers if you what? Love one another. Are you becoming more loving and responsible and mature is kind of the question. So this entire section addresses the household. It was the primary place where love and peace ruled. Because he just said, let love and let peace rule in your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in your, in your, in your being. And in a sense, he said, if it doesn't work at home, it, it probably won't work anywhere else. So if it's not happening in your home, your, your faith, don't fool yourself by thinking you're living it out there somewhere. That may be a really hard word to say. But that's an important thing to think about because that's what Paul is kind of saying when he comes back to the household. He starts there. To understand the entire section, you have to understand the culture and context. So first, you need to understand what the household was in Paul's day. It's not what we might think. Today, we talk about a nuclear family. We think of the household. What comes to mind? It's usually a husband and a wife and about 1.6 kids, right? That's not what he meant in the household in Paul's day. The household in Paul's day was a much larger unit. It consisted of a father, mother, children, which could be as many as 8 to 12. And beyond it, it included foster children, slaves, unmarried relations, freedmen, and even renters in a household. And so household management became very important. If you look at it, it's like a small village. And in many times, in many places, that household was actually a small business. It was the foundational building block of all society in that day. And it wasn't just a husband, wife, and 1.6 kids. And so he begins and he says, I want to share with you some household codes, which was a very um, popular thing in that day. In fact, Aristotle, Plutarch, Pliny, Socrates, and other historians and, and philosophers had much to write about this. You can go back and you can read it. The household was the building block. Its stability was essential for all of society. That's why they were so afraid when this Christian faith came in because it was a cult from the Judaism faith and and they already didn't like the, 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 the faith of the Jews and now these Jews are coming in. They're bringing another one about this Christ. Jesus, Paul, and the church taught that all believers were equal in Christ. Galatians says, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And this was what Paul was teaching in all the churches, and it created quite a stir. Because of this, Paul gives instructions then on how members and families should relate. Can you imagine what that's like in a church setting? And one way to look at it is if you're in the military. Let's say there's a person on a leadership team who is a private in the military, but there's a member who's a colonel. How do you relate to one another? You have to understand the context. And Jesus is saying there isn't rank, there isn't race. There isn't gender that divides us. Before Christ, we all stand at a cross. We are all his created beings and we are all loved and valued in his eyes and heart because he sends Jesus to show us that. But we also need a cross because we're all sinners and we're all on our knees before him. What's also important to understand is the culture and and the role of the father in that day. 
Remember, we're, we're crossing over this bridge. You have to understand who Paul is writing to. He's not a social revolutionist. He knows that if he does that, Christianity will not take root in any of these communities. And so he comes in, and in that culture of that day, the father was the only fully legal person in the family. He had power over all property. He had absolute authority over every member in the household. They were obligated to obey him, and Paul doesn't challenge the existing order. And it's not even that Paul agrees with the existing order, because you know that he says at one point, if you, you know, Onesimus can be free, or to the slave can be free, gain your freedom. But he works within the existing culture because he knows within that household, if he starts talking about slaves being free, it will mess up an economic system. It will not allow for Christianity. The most important thing in Paul's mind was that the word of Christ would get into the heart of people because in the heart of people, it is like a seed that begins to grow and it transforms the person, it transforms the family, it transforms the workplace, it transforms the world around you. The husband carried a title called pater familias, which was kind of CEO. Think of, the best I can think of is Downton Abbey. Anybody watch Downton Abbey? It's a little business. And in an agricultural culture where there was a little business, it was really important to have a pater familias, a, 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 a CEO leader of the entire group. And then there's also this sense that there's another thing which is called primogeniture, which means you would make sure the firstborn would get all the property and they would now be hopefully the faithful transmitter of this property and all that it goes with it. All the brothers and sisters work there, everybody, right? Everybody works for them. You get how that works? Well, today in our culture, we, we would not hold to a idea of primogeniture because we wouldn't say that the firstborn, if, if you were dividing up your inheritance and you just gave it to the firstborn, doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? We don't have an agricultural setting where people were all thriving in a small little business on that property. So women, if men were in, in that kind of position, women did not usually receive any kind of formal education except in the domestic arts. Children were legally regarded as their father's property, and their status was little better than a slave. Patriarchal hierarchy was firmly entrenched. It was the father's duty to guard the welfare of those under his authority, his wife, his children, his slaves, the renters, everybody. And it was their duty, in turn, to show him total obedience and deference. And the father decided, this is how the, the whole pater familias worked. The father decided whether a newborn would be raised or exposed to die. Often if it was a, a daughter and it would be another mouth to feed, it would be exposed to die. They granted permission for his children to marry, which still should be happening today. But anyway, <laughs> decided whom they could marry and could even force a divorce. In one of the ancient works entitled Dialogues, listen to this, fathers may even imprison or sell their sons and they have the power even more terrible than that than any of these, for they actually are allowed to put their sons to death without a trial or even without bringing any accusations at all against them. These were some of the household codes. 
And what Paul does is plant the seed that over time, over many centuries, transforms a culture. His hope was to get the word of the gospel into the hearts of people. And as it got into the hearts of people, lives and relationships would change. So having crossed the bridge to this culture, then let's look at these household cults. Here's what Paul writes. Colossians 3, 18, verses 4 through 2. Chapter 4 through 2. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you to, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, you can think of this as an employee-employer relationship today. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will... Receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I want you to note some things here because it's really important as you kind of went into this culture and we saw a little bit of it now as we kind of look at what Paul writes and begin to start applying and understanding in our own culture. Note the directive is not one-sided as would be typical in most household codes of that day. If you go back and read them, they were just one-sided. Most were addressing the property side of the equation. The husband, the father, the master are seldom addressed. Paul already makes a huge shift just by saying you both have responsibilities. It's not a a directive that's one-sided. Demands are made of both. Note the choice of words Paul uses here because it's important in this instruction. Note what he says to women versus what he says to children and slaves. This is another big change. Paul doesn't follow the culture of his day. If he did, he would have instructed women to obey. He doesn't follow contemporary household codes. If he did, it would read, women obey, children obey, slaves obey. That would have been typical. Paul makes a significant change also in using the word submit. You might go, oh, that's harsh. Unlike household codes of that day that consider wives to be property, Paul is making a shift, a gentle shift, that addresses wives directly as the ethically responsible partner. That wasn't true. Husbands and wives were to be teammates. Novel concept. They're to be partners. And the verb submit does not convey, the word hypotasso in the Greek does not convey some innate inferiority, but is used for a modest, cooperative demeanor that puts others first. It's the same word used for all kinds of different situations in the New Testament. Of all Christians, regardless of rank or gender, He uses it, Jesus does, in Mark chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians 16, Ephesians 5, 21. He begins before the household code there, which some believe is written around the same time as Colossians. He begins by saying, submit, willingly submit to one another. And then we have a break. But that's the, the command that's right before that. And it's a command. And I could go on. Paul changes verbs forms here. This is an interesting thing to understand. In the commands to the children of slave, Paul uses the active imperative, obey. That's your responsibility, obey. But Paul does not use the active imperative for submit, but uses a middle voice of the verb, which implies voluntary submission. This would have been incredibly novel in that culture in that day. 
It makes the wife's submission her willing choice. That's some universal law that ordains masculine dominance. Paul adds to submit these words, which is different as well, as is fitting to the Lord, or fitting in the Lord. Whereas the children of slaves, Paul says, obey. And to both parents and masters, he says, in everything. Again, Paul is changing the culture, I think, with subtle strokes of his pen. Because he has the understanding that if Christianity catches on, this world would be transformed. He has the belief that if the seed of truth can get into a heart, it can begin to change that person's heart and life. He actually believed what Jesus said when he said the, the, the kingdom of God, his rule, his, his inbreaking into your heart and your life. When you say, I'm done, I'm going to take off the old clothes and I'm so grateful for your forgiveness, I'm going to begin to forgive others. I'm going to choose to live with kindness and, and respect and, and, and honor and, and love people. I'm going to put on these new clothes. I'm going to do it with, within my house and where I work and all these different places. He believes that if this seed, like the size of a mustard seed, said Jesus, would get into the heart, it would over time grow and and overtake this huge space. Just imagine, right now, I think every one of us, there's some seed of truth that God is calling for you to let into your heart. It may be as simple as developing a grateful spirit. Just imagine if the seed of truth in an area where God is bringing conviction, it may be around the area that he wants you to develop a prayerful dependency on him like you haven't experienced before. Just imagine if that seed of truth begins to grow in your heart over time and you respond to it. The kind of change that can happen in you. The kind of change that can happen in your closest primary relationships with your kids or with your parents. The kind of things that you can influence, even in your work world. Can you imagine if you came in every day with a grateful spirit? And people would go, wow, what's with you? I mean, everyone else got a raise and you didn't. What, what in the world are you so happy about? And now to husbands, Paul gives this active imperative. This is an active imperative. Love your wives. Again, this is really countercultural. Directives like this are not found in household codes. Love was not a primary concern. One ancient observes that love and marriage was a stroke of good fortune. It was not the basis of the institution, which is true in arranged marriages, right? From time to time, you might read an epithet that recorded a husband's affection for his very dear wife. You might read that from time to time. Most often the commemorative inscription on the tomb or, 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 or mortuary monuments would be something like this. My wife never gave me a reason to complain. That's the culture. Love, the will to do what is best and loving for the other person wasn't a consideration. It wasn't in the job description. And it really remains true in a lot of cultures today. The kind of love that is willed for the good of others is still not found. People wear the dirty clothes of that kind of stuff all the time. I remember when I was in college and I had my study abroad. And one of the things we did, I spent six weeks in 
in Jerusalem in the old city and then we traveled around Turkey and went to Greece and Rome and, and when we were in Turkey we, we visited the seven churches of Revelation which were basically a number of them were just you'd go by and it'd be a field and they go that's where that one was and it would well, okay um, no archaeological digs or anything you just okay and then we'd go see that and they were basically giving us a track but when we were doing that I noticed something very interesting um out in the fields were women in this, it was 107 degrees heat. So the bus had windows down, it wasn't an air-conditioned thing, and we were just sweating away. And I'm watching these women who are carrying bundles of sticks, and, and they're hoeing with these crude instruments, and they're working away. And then we'd come to this little town or village, and there would be like this little watering hole, basically a little bar, and there would be all kinds of men sitting there drinking. And I remember saying to the guy, to the bus driver, from that culture in that area, a very good English-speaking person, and I said, uh, "What? What's going on here? I, I didn't have categories to place it." And he goes, oh, "That's just the way life is here." So why are guys there? And he was looking at me like I'm strange. Like, what kind of water are you drinking? Well, I'll fast forward that a little bit, and in, in, in about the mid 2000s, I had an opportunity a couple times to go to Ethiopia. I went to Ethiopia, way to a way um, distant, remote area in Ethiopia went on this car ride where you went through the river. We're going through this river. I I don't probably have time, but I'm going to anyway. We're going through this river in this little four-wheeler. And the guy's going like this. And and the water's like up to here. And I say to the guy, what are you, I mean, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm just trying to make sure I find the the, the path. I'm thinking, I've got kids at home. Anyway, (laughs) we get to this place. And what I find is interesting, I, I'm preaching to churches that were settled there in, in way in this remote area of, of in different tribes, and, and they were almost of the same denominational ilk, but they would never, ever spend any time together. The Western influence of, of our denominationalism kept them separate because you couldn't worship together. So I said, well, how about if we all worship together? So um, I'm preaching there, and, and it's a room, and it's about... 300 people packed in there and, and outside the windows there are a whole bunch of other people they walk for two to three days to get there and they were all excited because they were actually going to do something together as two different churches and, and they're standing there guys with their spears and, and I had noted that they had spears and so I decided I'd speak on David and Goliath and I talk about David and how powerful God is bigger than Goliath's spear and I told the, the weight of the stone on the spear and they when I said it when I'm preaching they all I get done and I feel like I've communicated fairly well with an interpreter. There's just, you know, there's, it was just quiet and whether they were tired or whatever. Um, the guy comes up to me and whispers in my ear and he goes, you know what we really need? I, I go, what? I was kind of coming down the side. He goes, would you go back up and talk about oh, husbands really loving their wives? Like, like helping them carry that water jug you see and helping them out in the field. I'm going, What? I didn't know how that fit into David. So I got back up there and I said, you know, guys, here's what the scripture has to say. This is what it means for us to live this kind of way. And basically just shared. And I just think to myself, look what, you can, you can look at Paul and, and give him a bad rap or you can say, wow, here is a guy who came in and made some subtle shifts that have impacted your life today. Anybody in the Western world. Talk about this as an Islam culture. See, Paul was very careful about what he had to say because he knew that what he had to say could disrupt 
the very purpose of why he came, which was to share Jesus with people. He knew that if Jesus got in the heart, it would change things. But he also knew that this cult could easily be shut down by the government. And so as he would go to those places, he was very careful. Can you imagine going into the Islam culture, not wearing, you know, women, you don't wear the, you know, the, the covering on your head. And, and, and you come in and you start talking about, you know, women should be driving cars. That's a big deal in Saudi Arabia. Paul's concerned about two things here. Being well-connected and well-motivated in the Lord. And this is a goal of marriage. It's also the goal in your relationship with your kids. I think it's also the relationship in workplaces. I don't believe Paul's concern here is about rights. and He's not talking about who's the leader. He's... Paul did not want to take issue, this issue to take precedence over the main mission. He's concerned about people submitting to Jesus and his lordship in their lives. And people, Paul's getting specific about putting on the new clothes. He's working within a culture that saw this teaching of Jesus as both strange and threatening. And I think the goal of Paul's teaching here, he's not upholding that culture for today. I think he's saying the goal, even in that culture, is to be well-connected. He's encouraging slaves like you would a worker today. Be well motivated. If you can gain your freedom as a slave, get it. If you need to get out of the job you're in, get out of it. It was so threatening in that day, Christianity, and what was being taught. Listen to what Tacitus says in his bestseller. I'm using that kind of in a funny way. Anyway, histories. He writes. They didn't have bestsellers. Anyway. He writes, those who convert to their ways follow the same practice. The earliest lesson they receive is to despise the gods of their land, to disown their country, to regard their parents, children, and brothers of little account. He also leveled these charges against the followers of the way, which was what they were known in Paul's day. Tacitus accused them of a hatred of the human race, a charge based on the assumptions that Christians forsook their familial and social obligations. That's the culture he was in. This freedom that Christ brought, brought fear of social upheaval, a blatant disregard for God's long-established household codes. They're thinking to themselves, look at these codes, no longer. They were concerned about their entire economy. Just read the book of Ephesians in Acts. And that's why Paul writes in his letter to Titus at that time, teach slaves to try and please their masters, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way you will make the teaching of Jesus Christ attractive. If the followers of Jesus did not incite insubordination, disloyalty, disorder, did not upset the family's stability, people would be open to Jesus. So he instructs them, be well-connected, be well-motivated, serve one another. I have to tell you, when you start holding on to rights, even in a marriage, it becomes a power struggle. You are called to be side-by-side. You are called to, um, to love and to, I believe, both willingly submit to God's Holy Spirit. Here's what I say. In a, in a marriage, every person, if it's to be in the Lord, 
every person at marriage, when it comes to things that you're wrestling with and trying to understand, be the first person to bend your knee before the Lord because he's the leader. Does it make sense? Greatest leadership is spiritual initiative to say, God, I'm going to submit my heart to what your will is, and we will do this together, and we will understand, because what's most important here is that we are well connected to one another, because our lives impact the world around us. They impact our children. They impact the places we work. Now, there's these things that Paul goes on because he makes a shift. He's talking about how the gospel is going to impact not only households, their whole economic political system built on this basic household structure, but he now starts talking about how you should pray for open doors. Because that's what he's concerned about. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful. And verses 3 and 4, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He says, just watch and pray and say, God, how is there an open door where I can love someone, where I can share with someone about the fact that God loves them even though they don't feel like it? Your circumstances can take it away if you're not watchful in prayer. Paul was in a prison in, 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 in Rome, and, and, and the Philippians are concerned. They're all upset because he wanted to go to Rome, and here he's in prison, and Paul writes back to him and says, you guys, don't be so worried. What has happened here, because I've been in watchful and I've been praying, is that God has opened doors to the whole palace guard. I'd have never, ever been able to tell them about Jesus if it wasn't for this circumstance. And because his eyes were wide open, he wasn't complaining, he wasn't moping, he wasn't going, oh, things are really wrong, and I thought I'd be here as a free person. He just said, God, here's an opportunity, an open door. And then he kind of says, do it as a team. Be a team. Do this as a church. Imagine a church that did whatever it takes to serve those around them, whether in a marriage, family, place of work within your community, and doing it all in the name of Jesus. Looking not at our rights, but the privileges to love and to serve. Praying for open doors to love someone tomorrow, the next day, and every day. And then doing this as a team, a community of people, a church, doing it all, whether word or deed, with grateful hearts. Let's pray. Father, I do pray um, that you would take what in your word has hit home and is um, you're speaking to To whatever you're speaking to in any person here, I pray that you would begin to take that seed and you would cause it to flourish, that you would water it and nurture it and cause it to grow, that the kingdom of God would grow and spread from life to life. In Christ's name, amen.